We finished uh, last week uh, our study, our five-month study of the Sermon on the Mount. And um, before we launch into a brand new series um, next Sunday called Love or Die, uh, I wanted to take uh, one Sunday together to be actually a little bit uh, more reflective. Uh, So uh, we're going to take a look at uh, some scripture uh, that we've covered in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But my heart behind what we're doing today and where we're headed today uh, is not just for me to be reflective, uh, but for all of us, meaning all of you, uh, to be reflective. And a good reflective question, uh, something that causes you to actually examine where you are, uh, is might sound like a very simple question, but uh, what's God teaching you right now? Uh, what is God maybe doing in your life right now? Uh, sometimes it's easy to look around and see, well, I clearly see he's teaching Michael not to be so this. It's always easy to identify what God's doing in other people's lives. Uh, I'm not asking you to do that. Uh, what I wanted to ask you to do is, what is God teaching you right now? So just think about that. Um, it's an important question. Um, I know it might sound uh, too simple, uh, but my fear is if we don't have an answer to that question, um, there will be no growth or there will be no maturity, uh, maturing taking place uh, in our life. We need to know what God is teaching us or what God is talking to us about or what God is up to in our lives if we're going to keep growing. If we just don't know, then we just keep living the exact same way as this, as if God is not actually trying to teach me or challenge me or instruct me or convict me with something. So again, what is God teaching you? If you have a pen, a piece of paper, uh, we don't provide it for you, but if you have it... Uh, Write it down. It could just be a phrase. It could be a few words. Um, I realize that you might get flooded with a bunch of things like, well, it's this and it's this and it's this. Um, I do believe God is gracious, and I do believe God's gracious not to overwhelm us with 25 different things. Uh, I think God wants to take us step by step uh, through what he's trying to teach us. So the question is, what is God up to in your life, or what is God teaching you? I know after looking at five months, and I realize some of you are first time here today and maybe just even first time over the last month or so, uh, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, which was Jesus' preaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And at a very basic level, Jesus was teaching us uh, how to relate with and understand God uh, rightly, how to relate with and understand ourselves rightly, and how to understand and relate with uh, culture or community or our neighbor uh, rightly. Uh, so God's teaching that Jesus was teaching us about God, his Father. Jesus was teaching us about ourselves, what we do and why we do it. And Jesus was also teaching us how we can relate with and understand uh, the world we live in. But Jesus was not teaching us just all of these things so that we could walk away saying, oh, I learned something new. Jesus was not just trying to give us information so that our heads could get big and say, I know a lot, Jesus was teaching us all of these things so that we would live differently. Specifically, we would live differently in relationship to God, in relationship to ourselves, and in relationship to other people. I know for me, um, I've learned a lot. Uh, I've been studying a lot, praying a lot. I've been reading 
like crazy uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, a few things I know. I've definitely learned I've got a very long way uh, to go, uh, but through the Sermon on the Mount, it was solidified. I know the way I'm going. I know that I have a very long way to go, uh, but I ultimately know who's going to take me there. I don't have to be confused as to how I'm going to get there or if I have to just will myself and work myself really hard uh, to get to that place. I know that Jesus has invited me to walk with him uh, in the way that he's called me to go. And I know that I have a very long way uh, to go. And I thought this one was important. Um, And I know who I want to go there with. And I want to go there with you. Um, I don't want to walk through life uh, solo. I don't want to walk through life as a lone ranger. Uh, I want to walk the life that Jesus invited me to walk with him, with you. And I hope that, I know you might look around a room of, I don't know, 70 some odd people, 75 people and say, I don't know these people, uh, but I hope at some level your heart says, I'm excited to get to know them, that I could walk with him, uh, with them. So I know a lot of things that I've got a long way to go, but I feel that Jesus has been teaching me uh, a lot about which way to go, how I'm going to get there, and who I want to go there with. So I asked you the question. I didn't tell you when I asked, but it's a two-part question. Uh, the first part of the question was just simply, what's, what are you learning? What's God teaching you? What's God telling you about you? Um, the second part of the question, which I think is just as crucially important, is, is what God teaching you showing up in how you live and who you're becoming? You can't divorce the question. The question has to be, what's God teaching you? And is what God is, what God is teaching you, is it showing up in who you're becoming? Is it showing up in how you are living? Sometimes we can get ha- happy to say, well, I know what God's doing in my life, but we never respond to what God's doing in my life. I think Jesus, what he's been trying to lead us uh, that we would follow is that we would be excellent learners and have great knowledge of the things of God, of ourselves, and of people, uh, but that our knowledge would actually manifest itself or give birth to wisdom. And that's the difference really between knowledge and wisdom, at least biblically uh, speaking. I don't know how Webster defines it, but biblical knowledge um, is that we know things, know things about people, ourselves, know things about God. Uh, but wisdom is the man or woman whose knowledge translates into a life that's lived very differently because of what they know or because of who they know. <clears throat> so it might be easy to say, I'm learning this, but is what you're learning actually showing up in the way you are living your life? I know for me that it's been an unsettling five months, five, six months of going through the Sermon on the Mount. And I say unsettling in a good way that Jesus has been unsettling Michael Davis and who I am and how I think and how I operate and how I react to people and how I love people. And it's been an unsettling in a good way, uh, five, six months of walking through this Sermon on the Mount. And as I was thinking about being unsettled, I don't know, maybe this actually describes you. This is how I wrote it down earlier. Have you ever noticed that in life, It's easy to grow comfortable with patterns of behavior, attitudes, or mindsets that even though you know it's not good, the fear of living different is so daunting that you don't pursue that which you know is best. 
That was a long, drag-on sentence. Have you ever noticed in your life, it's just easy to grow comfortable with patterns of behavior, attitudes, or mindsets that even though you know they're not good, and you may even know they're actually destructive, the fear of living differently is just so daunting that you don't pursue that which you know is God's best for you. And so rather than pursue God's best, we stick with what's familiar and known and comfortable and often convenient just because we're scared to death of what life on the other side might actually look like. Um, Kind of weird. Um, uh, I hope this will translate well. It was weird in my thinking uh, this week. Uh, But I wanted to share with you what I've been learning. Uh, And I'm going to give you my top seven things of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 of things that God has really been teaching me and showing me. And why I say it was weird is my seven might be very different than your seven. And you might not even come up with seven. You might just come up with one and a half. Um, But my hope is not to try to convince you that what God has been teaching and taking me through is ultimately what he's trying to take you through. My hope is that you would actually just be reflective and just say, God, what are you teaching me? What are you trying to talk to me about? What are you revealing to me? And these are my seven. Let me uh, pray, and I'm going to share some things from Scripture, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Father God, I just give thanks that uh, you are generous uh, in so many ways, but uh, one way, God, that you are generous is with your voice. Uh, So God, please, uh, as we just sang uh, a few moments ago, God, I do pray that... uh, the eyes of our heart would just be absolutely opened uh, to see you. And God, I just pray that our ears uh, would be open wide to hear what you have to say to us about us. God, I do pray that if there is anyone who is struggling to actually think through what you're teaching them, then God, I pray that in this next, uh, these next few moments we have together, you would be so generous to reveal uh, your heart and what you're teaching to every single person, that no one would walk out confused as to what you're doing in their life. And God, I pray we would not settle just for knowledge of what you're teaching us, but we would press on into wisdom to live out the very things that uh, you are teaching us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the first thing I've learned um, can be seen in the following verse. Matthew 5, uh, verse 8. Pretty powerful verse. It says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I have a, a, a sentence to go along with each thing that I've learned, and again, I'd encourage you to at least uh, write things down that would spark your, your thinking later. I've learned that if I really want to see God, I must cut out of my heart that which is contaminating my view of God most, namely, for me, my pride. I've learned that if I really want to see God, I must cut out of my heart that which is contaminating my view of God, namely, and you put in whatever you want to name. I know my pride will not just have causing an obstructed view of God, it will blind me to God because all I can see is me. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
I think the reason that many people don't see God in their daily lives is not because God is playing hide and seek, or it's not because God's trying to make it difficult on us to find him. Uh, I think the reason that many of us have a hard time, a difficult time, a challenging time seeing God in the midst of our everyday, those mundane moments as well as those incredible mountaintop moments. I think the reason that many of us have a hard time seeing God is because our hearts are contaminated. And it might not be pride for you. I'm going to guess it's pride for a lot of us. But it might not be pride, but there are things in our heart that contaminate our hearts. And a contaminated heart, Jesus says, will cause obstruction of view of God. If not obstruction, blindness of God. I asked this question five months ago when we specifically looked at the, that beatitude is do you really want to see God in your life? I mean, do you want to see God at work in you, with you, around you, through you? Do you really want to see God at work in your life? Um, And if you say yes to that, then you have to be willing to do some major heart surgery to cut out that which contaminates you from having a, a pure view of God at work in you and around you. If you say no, There might be some, I'm happy with not seeing God. Kind of scares me when I see God, or it's too challenging, too hard to see God as daily. So if you say no to the question of, do you really want to see God, what is it you really want to see? Because we're all looking for something, for someone. We're all looking. It's just a question. If you don't really want to see God, then what do you really want to see in your life? And if you want to see something less than the creator himself, you're settling for seeing something that's not all that good. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They'll have a clear, unhindered, unobstructed view of God. That's the first thing I've learned. The second thing I've learned is uh, is summed up in these few verses. Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said... Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, the I is Jesus, but I, Jesus, tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. And this is such a great question. Is not your life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Jesus was a master at asking phenomenal questions. And then I put Matthew 7, very simply says this, verse 1, do not judge or you too will be judged. Three verses, and the second thing that I've learned is that I've learned that I need to call sin, sin, rather than saying I have certain struggles. I'm just, I'm getting too old to keep playing the game that says, oh, I'm just struggling with, you know, not praying for that person who's coming after me. I'm just getting too old to keep saying, I'm just struggling with worry and anxiety and fear in my life. Or I'm just struggling with, you know, unforgiveness in my life. Or I'm just struggling with uh, being a judgmental person. These are all ways of just justifying or rationalizing a sinful life. There has to come a point where you just call sin, sin, and you stop calling it a struggle. So if you are plagued with worry, 
You don't struggle with worry, you sin when you worry. If you're the person who walks down the street and every person you see, you're just ripping them apart. Gosh, why do they look like that? Why does their outfit look like that? And why do they do their hair? And you're just ripping them apart in order to make yourself feel better about yourself. That's not a struggle you have. That's a sin. When someone hurts you and wrongs you, and it will happen, uh, often by the people you love and care about the most, and you don't forgive them, you don't struggle with unforgiveness. You sin when you don't forgive. So I'm almost 38 now, and I'm just at 38 finally realizing I'm just, I don't want to, I just, I need to call sin, sin. Because if I don't call sin, sin, I won't repent. I'll just continue to be 39 and then 40 and 45 and 50 and just, wow, I'm just still struggling with this. It's because I never made the decision to repent. So the second thing I learned through Jesus' teaching is I've learned that I need to call sin, sin, rather than saying I have certain struggles in my life. Third thing I've learned uh, can be seen in Matthew 6. It says this, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Third thing that I've learned is this, I've learned that I can live my life performing for God and for others, which is really a life lived with a stiff neck and a hard heart, or I can walk with God in peace, rest, and joy, knowing that He wants more than anything. What He wants more than anything is me, not me plus my performance. It's a long sentence, but um, sums up, God doesn't want me performing for Him. God wants me being with him, in rest, in peace, in joy, in confidence that he's my father and I'm his son. Or he's your father and you're his daughter or her daughter, however that sentence goes. I say stiff-necked and hard-hearted because if you are ultimately living to perform for other people, you will always be looking around. Did anyone just see what I just did there? Your neck will get so tired of always looking around up and down sideways. Did anyone notice what I just did? Did anyone notice how I just did that? So you will have a stiff neck, and I say that you also have a hard heart. You know why? Because the applause will never be enough, will never be loud enough, and it will never be from the people that you're ultimately trying to get the applause from. So if you live for the performance in front of men and in front of God, you'll have a very stiff neck and you'll have ultimately a very hard heart. There is nothing in what Jesus ever teaches, but specifically in Matthew 5, 6, or 7, that you could ever accuse Jesus of saying, he's talking about we need to perform for God. You can't ever nail Jesus on that one of saying that Jesus was teaching about a performance-driven faith. Jesus always taught that we are to have a faith that is driven by the grace of God at work in our lives. That's it. So your faith will either be driven to perform in order to get something from people or to get something from God, or it will be driven by the grace of God at work 
in you. I'll stick on this one for a moment. If you choose a performance-driven faith, you're headed down the road of religion. And I'm thoroughly convinced that Jesus did not come to earth, live a perfect life, die a painful death, and rise again to create a community of religious people. He did all of those things that he would have a community of people that would follow him in faith by the grace of God at work in their lives. But if you perform for man or for God, you are ultimately on the road just to becoming a religious person. And anytime there is religion, it's just rules made up by man, for man. And the sad reality of religion is it always leads to guilt or fear or condemnation or anxiety or worry because you're always wondering, have I done enough? Have I done enough? If you're a performance-driven person, you will be plagued with that question until the day you die. Did I do enough? But if you have a faith that's driven by the grace of God at work in you and through you, you can rest. You can have peace. You can have joy knowing that he did it all for you. And he's not looking for your performance. He's looking for you just to follow him. That was the third thing. The fourth thing um, is Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The fourth thing that I've learned specifically through this text is this. I've learned that I can live safely and comfortably seeking not only to survive life, but to maintain all that I have, or I can risk it all by giving all of myself away for the sake of the gospel, knowing that treasure in heaven will not rot, rust, or be stolen, unlike treasure stored up on earth. Again, a long sentence. I can just live safely and comfortably trying to maintain and survive life and maintain what I have, or I can say I'm going to risk it all, knowing that Risking it all for the gospel uh, is to store up for myself treasures in heaven. And what a promise it is in the Matthew passage in Matthew chapter 6, uh, where it just talks about uh, where moth, rust, destroy, thieves break in and steal, but store for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. It's untouchable. I think, especially in younger years, maybe teens, early 20s, Uh, you have this temptation that you want to gain it all, as it were. But I think as you get older, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, what happens is you just try to start keeping what you have. I've got my house, I've got my this, I've got my that. And life really becomes more about just trying to protect and keep and guard what you have. I don't want to pass on to my three kids, wow, look at dad. He maintained it all. I would love for my kids, when they get older enough to think about these things, to say, I love that my mom and my dad risked it all. Risked it all for something so much greater than just trying to maintain. 
I don't want to maintain. That's what I've learned. I just don't want to go through life just trying to keep what I have or maintain what I think I want to have. There are those who will live life, plain life, just try not to lose. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to live my life just making sure I don't lose. I would rather take my hits and live hard and try to win. I'm using a sports metaphor, so it's, I'm not winning anything. Just work with the metaphor. It gets harder as you get older. And some of you who are older than me would probably agree and testify to that. Because the older they get, older you get, the more that you start to have. And the more you start to have, you don't want to lose that. You want to maintain it and keep it. Jesus told me, Jesus told you, Jesus told thousands of people on the mount that day, don't store for yourselves treasures here. Store for yourselves treasures in heaven. The fifth thing that I've learned um, is in Matthew 7, verse 12. So in everything... Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Everything. I think Jesus is pretty clear that that covers everything. Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. The fifth thing that I've learned uh, is this. I've learned that I can manage and maintain dysfunctional and dissatisfying relationships with others, or I can create relationships with others that are healthy, helpful, meaningful, and God-honoring by doing unto others as I would like to have others do unto me. I wrestle with this one because I have to ask, are the relationships that I have ultimately honoring to God? And some of the relationships that I have, I would have to say no because I'm creating a level of dysfunctionality because I'm waiting for that person to do for me what I should be doing for them. So I've learned I can manage and maintain dysfunctionality and dissatisfying relationships, or I can be the guy that creates healthy relationships, biblical relationships, God-honoring relationships. You might be a person who complains about this, or you might be a person who hears a lot of complaints about this. But too many people complain about what they do not have relationally, rather than doing the hard work of creating the kind of relationship they long to have. What I've learned is, um, it's, what's the point of complaining about what I don't have and what people aren't doing for me? And what Jesus is teaching me, Michael, why don't you just start doing for others what you long for other people to do unto you? I imagine for all of us, no matter where you are in relation to God, and I would imagine that there would be a lot more forgiveness and grace, compassion, love, patience, humility in relationships with people, and all of those things kill dysfunctionality, kill just any disunity, Anytime there's mercy, compassion, love, forgiveness, patience, grace, that builds a healthy relationship. If I would just give that to people, I guarantee the relationships I have with people would look different. How different would your relationship with your spouse look if you began doing unto them what you'd like them to do unto you? 
If you want your spouse to be a forgiving person, a compassionate person, a patient person, a gracious person, did I say patient? <laughs> then why don't you be patient with your spouse? Why don't you be humble with your spouse? Why don't you be loving and forgiving and compassionate? Why don't you be generous with your spouse? Some of us have family histories that are at best horrific. Why don't you be the one that creates a new family dynamic that says, I will love, I will be gracious, compassionate, and run through the list and see what God will do with you and your family to create a brand new dynamic. Jesus taught me and he taught you in everything do to others what you'd have them do to you, for that sums up the entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament is summed up in love God and love people. This is a big one, and that's the fifth one that I've learned. The sixth thing I've learned can be seen in this, Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. What a great verse, and there's a great painting uh, back there. If you haven't seen it, uh, take a look at it. Stare at it a little bit before you leave today. It's a great picture of storms are coming, rough seas, rough winds, but there's a house, small little house on top of a huge rock with a big cross embedded into it, and it's unshakable. What I've learned, the sixth thing I've learned, I've learned that wisdom is seen in not only knowing the words of Jesus, but living out the words of Jesus every day, not just some days. I've learned that wisdom is seen. You can see a wise person. You don't hear a wise person. You see a wise person. You might see a no, or you might hear a knowledgeable person, but you'll see wisdom. You'll see wisdom. I've learned that wisdom is seen in not only knowing the words of Jesus, but living out the words of Jesus every day and not just some days. There's a lot of people, and you might be one, who know a lot about Jesus. You know a lot of verses. You may have memorized Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You might be able to say a lot of things about Jesus, but your knowledge of Jesus does not translate into a different life. It's just you have knowledge. You know things, and if there was like a Bible trivial pursuit, which there might be, you would win it every time. Like, there's people I know who study those cards, so when they actually play the game, they can be seen as the most knowledgeable person. I've done that a couple times, <laughs> so I confess. A lot of knowledge, but it doesn't really impact the way I live. And I just wrote down the question of why. How can I be a person, or how can you be a person who knows so much, but it impacts so little of your life? This was what I wrote down. We know what Jesus said, but what he said does not always coalesce with how I want to live. So there's a lot who know Jesus, you know everything he said, but what he said does not always coincide or coalesce with ultimately how I want to live my life. Jesus made pretty clear in the, what we even talked about last week. If you're that person that has knowledge but just has, it's making no difference in your life, you're ultimately living your life how you want to live your life, you're building your life on the foundation of sand. And when the storms come, and they will come, 
there will be the great sound of a great crash coming from your life. You will fall and you will fall hard. That's the last thing Jesus said. He did not end on an uplifting note. He said, if that's you, you will crash and you will crash hard, total destruction. But Jesus said, if I would live my life based upon not just the words of Jesus, but I lived the words of Jesus, I'm on a rock. I'm unshakable. I said last week, I might get wet. I might, uh, the wind might blow me around and toss me around a little bit, but I'm unshakable. I think we sang, sang uh, last week, Red, Lo- Red, your name's not Red, it's Rob. Rob led us in the song, um, help me out, Rob. Wow, that's good. No, not that one. It is well. Talk about um, whoever wrote the song, I'm totally having a mental breakdown. Horatio. Thank you. Spofford. Lost his son, lost everything in terms of worldly possessions uh, in the uh, great Chicago fires in the 1800s, and then lost his, his daughters. But yet when he is going overseas to collect their dead bodies, it was told this is the spot uh, where the boat crashed. He pens this song, It's, it's Well. I got wet, the wind has tossed me around, and the world has taken everything that I hold dear in terms of my family, but it's still well with my soul. That's an unshakable life. I've learned that there are a lot of people who know a lot of things, but it's not making a bit of difference in their life. This was a question that uh, was helpful to me is, do people see your wisdom or do they just know that you know a lot? I don't want to be that guy. Wow, that Michael Davis, wow, he, he can give you a Bible verse. He'll pull something out of uh, Ezekiel. He'll quiz him on Leviticus 18. He knows his stuff. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be the guy, and I hope you want to be the man or woman that just doesn't have a lot of knowledge that makes no difference in your life, but you have wisdom because it's impacting, influencing how you live with God and walk with God, how you understand yourself and how you live, engage the world around you. Seventh thing, the final thing, thing I've learned um, can be seen in the story. What I love about this story is it happened right after the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew records, uh, after Jesus says, that person's life will fall with a great big crash, Jesus is done Matthew says the crowds were amazed. They'd never heard such teaching with such power, with such authority. Because Jesus kept saying again and again, you've heard it said, but I, I'm telling you this. They've never heard teaching like that, and they were amazed. And I just imagine there were thousands of people there that day, and they're all walking down the mountainside in amazement. Wow, that was the best weekend of my life. Never heard such teaching before. And the very first thing, why I'm even entitling this message, Sermon on the Move, is because of what Jesus not only taught, he illustrates one last illustration for people. Such a powerful story, Matthew 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. And a man with leprosy came and knelt before him, 
and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. And then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Might seem like a pretty simple story, another healing story. Jesus puts his hand on someone, says be clean, and he's clean. Life goes on. But the seventh and last thing that I learned, not just from the Sermon on the Mount, but from the very next text coming out of the Sermon on the Mount, what I'm just calling the Sermon on the Move, is that I've learned that I can live appreciating Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, or I can follow Jesus' example and live his Sermon on the Move. Namely, I've learned Jesus calls me to be missional. I can't sit in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and ignore the first four verses in chapter 8 because Matthew says immediately as Jesus is coming down the mountain, thousands of people are coming down, Jesus meets this leprous man. And I'll explain that in a second. But my question of if God has been teaching me and calling me to be missional, it's a word we use here a lot in church. It's a word you might just be familiar with in 21st century Christianity is, oh, they're a missional church. They're not this type of church. They're those, those are the missional people. Well, what does it actually mean to be the man or woman who lives the Sermon on the Move? Or what I'm just saying, what does it really mean to live missionally? And I'll give you, I think, four quick things, and uh, we'll call it a morning. And the first one is this. We demonstrate love for people, then we tell them we love them. Do you notice what Jesus did first? I want you to catch that. We demonstrate love for people, then we tell them we love them. When this leprous man came to Jesus, Jesus reached out and he touched him before he ever said a word. That's that's intentional. Why did Jesus reach out and physically put his hand on this leprous man? So that when Jesus would say the words, I love you, I care, I'm willing, he would know it to be true. Why? Because he had already demonstrated, he had put his hands on this leprous man. I think there are a lot of people who hear, I love you, and it's just words. I think our way of loving is we speak it, we say it, and that's it. There's no follow-up. There's no demonstration. There's no tangible example of my love for you. I know it would drive my wife nuts if I just told her every day, I love you, but I remain to be a jerk. Stop telling me you love me and stop being a jerk. I just, I know that... There's a lot of people outside the church who are like, you know, the church talks about how they love, but I just don't see it. And I think what Jesus is teaching is he demonstrated love. He put his hands on the person before he ever spoke a word to that man so that when he did speak a word to that man, the man would know that he was cared for, that Jesus was willing. Why? Because his hands were all over him. 
What does it mean? What does it look like to be missional? We demonstrate love for people, and then we tell them that we love them. Number two, we demonstrate love for all people. I'm answering the question, uh, not necessarily now what I've learned, but I'm answering the question, what does it really mean to be missional? Demonstrate love for people, then we tell them we love them. Number two, we demonstrate love for all people. Jesus did not love this man because he was lovely. I've seen leprosy up close. When I was in Africa, when I was in uh, Jamaica, there was leprous villages. And what's really sad is that in leper colonies, they can be cured. But they don't have the resources and the funds like we do here to cure it. And so there's people who are suffering with leprosy. And I've seen it. It's not pretty. So there was nothing in this man's at least appearance that rendered him lovely, but Jesus had compassion on this man. In Mark's telling of this story, the same story, it says in Mark 1:41, filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. What led Jesus to do what he did is that he was so filled with compassion. He didn't have pity on the man. We're not called to pity people because pity just leads us to be still indifferent. Compassion leads us towards action. Jesus filled with compassion. If you were a leper in the first century, four things were reality. You were declared unclean, and anyone who was declared unclean was cut off spiritually, culturally, and relationally. Imagine being cut off from everything, your spiritual community, your family and your friends, and just the culture around you. If you had leprosy, you were deemed and declared to be unclean. The second thing is everywhere you went, when someone came within 10 yards of you, you had to start saying as loud as you could, unclean, unclean. Because if someone came into contact with you or touched you, they would become unclean. And so they would make lepers call out, unclean is coming, unclean is coming, and so people would walk away. Can you imagine if you had to walk into church every single Sunday, and that's what you just, you had to sit in that back blue room. And if someone even came close to you, unclean over here, unclean. I mean, can you imagine your heart and your head? The second thing is the assumption that was, what, the assumption was that leprosy was contagious. So people not only stayed away because they were unclean, or they didn't want to become unclean, but they might catch it. Can you imagine if people just didn't want to be around you? They were so fearful that they might catch something from you. And the fourth thing is the assumption was that the judgment of God was on you. If you were a leper, that's your scarlet letter. You are the most messed up sinner. That's why you have leprosy. You're an evil, wicked, sinful person. So this was what was going on if you were a leper. If you're that leper... What do you need more than anything else in life? If you're cut off socially, culturally, relationally, spiritually, if your head and heart is so messed up because you just know you're, in, you're dead in people's eyes, what do you need more than anything else? Someone who's got compassion to come close enough 
to touch you and tell you I'm willing. If I'm that guy, I have... I would be so desperate for someone to come close and just to put their hands upon me and say, I'm willing. I wonder, I was thinking about just a practical question is, how did this guy know who Jesus was? And I'm guessing Jesus was the only one standing there. I imagine that in a multitude of thousands of people They're coming off this wonderful experience of hearing the Sermon on the Mount, but then they hear in the distance, unclean, unclean, and it's getting louder. And he's like part in the Red Sea, because wherever he's going, everyone else is going the other way. But then there's Jesus. I think that's how he knew who Jesus was. He was the only one willing to stand near, and he came and just said, Lord, if you are willing. How do you be missional? We demonstrate love for people, then we tell them we love them. Secondly, we demonstrate love for all people. It doesn't matter how jacked up a person is. We are called to love them, to be compassionate towards them, in word, in deed. That's what Jesus, if you want to be like Jesus, you will be filled with compassion for no matter who the person is and no matter what a mess their life may be. I guarantee we all know someone in our life right now who just needs the touch of God on their life. And God might be saying to you, would you just be that person? Would you get over your own hangups of how this might inconvenience you and be such a burden on your time and how it might look to other people? Would you just let the compassion of God flow through you and just reach out and touch them? You speak, I'm willing. I'll love you. The third thing is we demonstrate love for all people at all times. I've already kind of painted this picture of like, gosh, what it must have been like. This guy part in literally the Red Sea of just people. And Jesus is the only one that is left standing there. This was a question that I really was stuck on this week of how many people did this guy have to pass before he found Jesus? How many hundreds or thousands of people did this one man who needed the touch of God in his life, how many people did he have to pass before he finally got to Jesus? And what rocked me about that question was how many people have to continue to walk by Christians in order to find Jesus? How many non-Christians have to keep walking by Christians and keep walking by Christians and keep walking by people who claim to follow God until they finally find God? I know I don't want to be the person that I'm just letting people walk by me every single day. Can you imagine that? Thousands of people this guy walked by. But how many people in our life keep walking by us, and they're not seeing God. That was a really big challenge to me. We demonstrate love for, uh, we demonstrate love for people, then tell them. We demonstrate love for all people, and we demonstrate love for all people at all times. And what I mean by all times is there's no bad time in your life. 
oh, this is not a good time for me to talk to that person. This is not a good time for me. I wish we could grow from the idea of good time and bad time to divine moments, divine appointments, God's time. That might be a divine appointment I need to step into. And if I keep operating out of the category, it's just not good timing, got too much going on in my life, or you'll miss a divine moment, a divine appointment, and there will be yet another person who walks by yet another Christian in search of trying to find God. Last one uh, about being missional, and I'll wrap up with this, is being missional means believing that God not only wants to transform your world, but transform the world around you. What I love about this leper, and I don't know how to interpret this, Jesus told him, don't go tell anyone. He's like, I I can't. I have to. Matthew doesn't record it, but Mark does. Instead, this is Mark 1, verse 45. Instead, he went out and he began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. As soon as this leper was transformed, healed, head to toe, made clean. He just could not help but go tell people about this Jesus. I talk about a missionary who was on fire, who was just on, had so much passion. I just have to tell people what God has done for me. Can you imagine the ambassador he became? Jesus couldn't go into any more towns without being unrecognized, so he would have to go to solitary places. All because of one leper didn't pay attention to Jesus, but spoke freely about Jesus because he was so excited. I believe this leper, as he walked away, not only said, Jesus has not only touched my life, but I want everyone else to know about this Jesus who changed my world. And he had this belief from such an early on stage that this Jesus could change the world. So I'm a converted Apple fan, okay? I used to be a PC. I don't know what I was thinking. I was in darkness. And um, <laughs> to all you PC users, you will see the light as I have one day. Um, as I've come to uh, appreciate, certainly, uh, Mac's uh, creativity or Apple's creativity, uh, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination an expert on uh, this man who is a cultural phenom in the Mac world, at least, uh, Steve Jobs. But when Steve Jobs started his company, uh, late 70s, early 80s, he was coming up against IBM and coming up against Microsoft. And there was plenty of naysayers who said, you have no shot at competing in this market against these two huge monsters called IBM and Microsoft. And this was an article pulled from uh, Harvard Business Journal of some folks who were with Steve Jobs and Apple back in the day. And I just thought this was an incredible quote um, from this article. He says, Our fundamental purpose was to innovate, invent, and lead an entire cultural revolution. All the people I met there, passionate young people, truly believed They were changing the world, not selling computers. And I'm like, gosh, if like 
no offense to anyone in here who's a nerd, but if nerds who have like great creativity and the ability to innovate thought that they could actually change the world, why can't we do that in the church? Like, is there anyone here who actually believes that God not only wants to change your world, but he wants to change the world through you, through us? A missional person believes that God will use you to change your world around you. Not just your world, meaning you, your personhood, but change the world around you. No one would ever say of Apple 30 some odd years ago, they, they, they had no shot. No one would disagree now that this company is in so many ways, so many levels, changing and influencing our culture. And I don't mean just how we buy music and play music and receive music. They are shaping culture. And it just started with a few people who believed we're not just selling computers. What we will do will change the world. The disciples started with 12, one hung himself, went to 11. And then the 11, after they deserted Jesus, after they denied even knowing Jesus, came back together. And they were commissioned by Jesus in the upper room a week after his resurrection. And Jesus said in John chapter 20, as the Father has sent me, so now am I sending you. And they went for it. 50 days after Jesus, or after Peter denies even knowing Jesus, he gets up and preaches the most phenomenal message ever. In 50 days, there was a transformation of a guy who doesn't even know Jesus. I swear to God, I don't know this man. To a man who says, you have to know this man. I know him. I love him. He's changed my world. Started with a group of 11. I'm not trying to fire the troops up here with some motivational speech of let's go change the world. I really want you more to be reflective and ask yourself the question, do you actually believe God wants to do that with you and through you? Because if you don't, he won't. You'll miss it. I believe personally that God wants to use me to do greater things. And I I don't say that in pride because I say that of every single person in here. I believe God wants to use you and will use you not just to change your world, but to change the world around you, where your neighbors would come to meet God because of your witness, not because of your voice, but because of your witness. I believe our church, albeit a small community now, has a shot at changing and impacting this city we live in called Woburn and the greater city, greater Boston we live in. I believe that God wants to do that and will do that. If you don't believe that, you'll miss out on Jesus telling you you're a sent one. You're a missionary. It has been a a great joy for me personally to uh, reflect with you publicly uh, on what God's been teaching me. Those are my seven things. And the seventh one was expounded on of what it really means to be missional. But I will go back to where we started. What is God teaching you? What is God saying to you about you? If you don't know how to answer that question, then I would get down on your knees today and beg God, please show me, God, what you are doing in my life so that I can respond to you rightly and appropriately so I don't have to live another day just going through the motions. Father God, I just give thanks for Jesus. I give thanks 
that Jesus taught and preached like he did in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. God, I give thanks that you led us as a community. The very first thing we did is to sit with and wrestle and consider everything that Jesus said in these two chapters. God, I give thanks that you have taught me. God, I give thanks that you have not given up on me. God, I give thanks that you are teaching and speaking and revealing things to people here. God, I do pray that if there is anyone here who is still confused as to what you're doing in their life, God, please let any scales on eyes fall off right now. God, any walls that have been put up in people's hearts that just hinder and are blocking people from receiving from you what you have for them, God, please speak to every single person in this room. God, my prayer, and I hope it's a shared prayer, is that we're not just looking and seeking for knowledge, but we're looking towards wisdom, that what you reveal ultimately will transform how we relate with you, how we relate with ourselves, and how we relate with the world and the culture we live in. Jesus, I give you thanks that you came, sent by God on mission to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus, we celebrate you. We celebrate your sinless, perfect life, a holy life, pleasing to the Father. Jesus, we give thanks that you went to a cross and paid the penalty for my sin, for our sin, so that we would not have to endure separation from you, endure the wrath of God on our life. Jesus, you took that for us. We give you thanks. And Jesus, we give thanks that death and Satan and sin could not defeat and conquer you, but you rose on the third day, giving us life, bringing us by faith, by your grace at work in us into a place of peace with you, God. If you're a Christian, Today in this place, come and celebrate communion, taking a piece of bread and, and dipping it in the wine or juice, giving thanks to Jesus for what he's done for you. And if you're not a Christian, I know I say this every single Sunday, and just so you know, I will never stop saying it. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to become a Christian. I want you to follow Jesus. Not by performing for him, but by God's grace at work in you, responding to Jesus. If you've not made a decision to Walk with Jesus, confess him as your God, then do that today.